I always advise people build your own model, even if it's a simple model, because there is nothing like having to go through and make assessments of rents and operating expenses and plugging them into a model and understanding how it flows through on your income expense summary, how cash flows go over time. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam A. Adams, with my co-host, Mr. J. Lou, Jason Lewis. How are you, Jason? Doing great, sir. I hope so. I'm excited about our interview today. So we're going to be talking a little bit to a developer. And, uh, you know, I always think it's important to have episodes that are long-lasting and always, what, what's that, evergreen. They call them evergreen. I, I like evergreen episodes. And today we will be talking a little bit about coronavirus because as we're recording, we are in coronavirus, but the gentleman, Scott Chopin, who is on the show, has actually, this, this is his third market correction that he gets to be a part of because he's been uh, doing this for about 20 years. So he felt the 2001 crash, although it didn't hit him too hard in California. He lives in, was it Long Beach? Long Beach, right. Long Beach. Um, 2008, it it had to hit everybody. So I imagine you got, you felt that one a little? For sure. Yes. Okay. (laughs) And so for, for those of us who are listening to the show and we're thinking to ourselves, well, what do I do in a crash? And what is, what is Scott doing? He's a developer. Like, isn't that scary to, to own these things and they're not even yet cash flowing but you still got to pay the bills. So I think we're going to get into a lot of that. Uh, Jason wants to talk a little bit about IRR because there's some good stuff that's going to come out of that conversation that I think the listener should be looking forward to. But Scott Chopin, my first question for you is just to take me back to the year 2000 Mm -hmm. when you were doing your first, was that when you were doing your very first real estate deal or was it before that? Uh, so I actually, uh, um, a couple of things to add to that. So I actually have a family background in the real estate development business. So my uncle Mike and my dad, Carrie were both, uh, real estate developers, you know, as their career choice. So mm-hmm. that got me exposure to it young. And then in, uh, the mid nineties, I actually worked for series, a couple of different major, uh, real estate development companies to gain, you know, experience. And then in 2000 was the time that I felt it was appropriate to go out on my own. So by the time I started the company, I already had probably at least 10 years of background between real estate development professionally, as well as some, you know, some construction management background as well from our family operations. Got it. Got it. So when was your very first real estate deal that you ever did ever? Um, so basically in 1998, uh, I basically would put together an affordable housing project, uh, in Colorado. Uh, and I found the land, I put together the deal and then I actually brought it to my former employer at that time, which was a guy named Mike Costa who ran a company at the time called Kaufman Road multi-housing group. And they were an affordable housing developer and syndicator and a joint venture partner uh, for others. So I brought them the deal and we ended up uh, doing that deal together. In fact, they still own it today. Uh, So that was the very first deal I ever did. Okay. So how big was this project? You know, that one wasn't too big. I think it was like 30 or 40 units. This is going back a long time, Adam. So it's like uh, Elizabeth Street. It was a senior tax credit project in Fort Collins, Colorado. 
Um, wow. Great town. Um, senior affordable housing is always, you know, has a great social impact feel to it. And, you know, is definitely, you know, part of the normal, you know, menu of uh, tax credit affordable housing project styles that one would do. Was there any challenge? Were there any challenges when you were closing that first one that um, you learned from or that the listener might be able to learn from before they even, you know, make that mistake or whatever? Yeah, you know, I mean, the deal turned out great. Uh, what I would encourage people to do is, I mean, I knew how to do the deal. So, you know, you, as a developer, you go identify a market you want to be in, you find land in that marketplace, you check the zoning, you know, you cost it out and run pro formas and check rents and those kind of things. So all the normal process. I think the unique thing about that was that I chose to partner with a person and, you know, a very strong part of my network, Mike Costa, who I mentioned before. And so, you know, people who might be entertaining the idea of getting into the development business, I would always encourage, you know, pair up, get mentors, find people who you can joint venture with. It's a very, very standard, you know, uh, structure in the real estate development business and, you know, can, can gain you a lot of uh, knowledge, right? You have access to people who are professionals and operating it daily. Uh, they give you financial capacity. So that was probably, I would say, the, the main, you know, smart move I made in that deal was to bring it to them. Of course, I knew them. They knew the product. I knew what they were looking for. So there was a good match, but we worked to make that match, you know, up front or, you know, even before we brought it to them. And then when we brought it, we knew they'd accept it. So that was an out of state deal for you at the time. So, yeah, good question. So when I worked for Mike in the tax credit business, it's really uh, all the major uh, developers all have either, you know, supra regional footprints or even national footprints. So at the time when I worked for Mike from like the mid 90s to about 1990, let's see, when did I left in 98, I think, to go to work for another company. Um, we were, you know, as a project manager working for Mike, I mean, we got on the plane regularly. And so okay. as a, as a senior project manager, when I left there, I really had sort of a profit and loss type of structure where I would go find deals, bring the whole thing to fruition. And then they would sort of backstop it, you know, with, uh, you know, with us as a, as a project manager, think like a regional partnership. And so what that had us do is uh, had, you know, regional areas that we worked in at the, when I worked for Mike. So I covered all the front range cities in Colorado. So think Fort Collins, Loveland, uh, Denver, um, and, and uh, Colorado Springs. And then I covered the Northern Bay area, which was Contra Costa Alameda County. So we were managing projects remotely already. And, you know, we can certainly get into details about how one could be effective in that. But it is different than if somebody were to go buy an existing asset in Cleveland and they're based in California because you have to run construction operations. You have to find, you know, heavy duty architecture, service providers, civil engineers and those kind of things that would differentiate from a value add deal that you might, uh, you know, purchase out of market. Sounds great. So you, you already had kind of that base, that risk factor was lessened a little bit because of that, that base you already built. Yeah. So because I'd already been operating, you know, when I worked for Mike and then I left, uh, I already had a deep network of people that I, I knew brokers, you know, I knew people at the city. Um, I knew, you know, architects, uh, civil engineers. I knew the tax credit allocation agency in, in Colorado is called CHAFA, CHFA. Mm -hmm. And so we knew that. And, you know, part of, you know, about affordable housing, what I call true affordable housing or government subsidized 
is the market is almost never an issue. In other words, there's so much demand for affordable housing that you never have to greatly worry about going to a new market and having concern about a, a demand unless, you know, you go out to some far flung rural market, uh, any major urban metro like a Denver MSA or, you know, any of the major urban metros across the United States, you're always going to pretty much be assured that, you know, demand from families and seniors that are at or below 60% of median income will always need housing. There's never enough. There's always a finite supply of government subsidy to support these projects. So when you do deliver a project into a marketplace like that, you know, you're, you're fairly confident that you're going to lease the units. I mean, they're so far below market rents guys, you know, as you would expect, if you had a unit that you could drop the rents by 50% on, on a value add deal, you would never worry about running that unit. For sure. How, uh, how do you go about using these, these tax benefits? I know a, a fellow broker of mine has done mm-hmm. a lot of development and he was trying to get in with uh, Chaffa this right. few months back. And it kind of was a, I don't know, good old boy network, but <laughs> it was, they yeah. already had a limited number of, of credits and mm-hmm. they already had more developers or, or connections um, to their credit. So it was right. He's struggling to get in there. So, yeah, that, so I call that oversubscribed oversubscription is standard in every marketplace across the U S in other words, again, this demand for affordable housing far outstrips the resources to produce it. So what your friend ran into was, you know, developers who are regularly operational in, in Colorado and, and no Chaffa and they know them and there's no, like, I mean, there is an old boy, there could be an old boy ethic for sure. Every state's a little bit different. I don't really, I've never found Colorado to be that way. But what you do get is, is you know, operational and geographic expertise. In other words, a developer who's been in Colorado for 20 years doing tax credit projects is going to know the system inside out. Um, they're going to know the trends. They're going to know what the allocation agencies like Chaffa, what they have as a preference. Because every year the states will say, oh, this this year or for this number of years, we want to have families that are at 30% BR focus or permanent supportive housing is a more often, you know, a told story today. So like think homeless housing that's using tax credits and has services or PSH or permanent supportive housing. That's a big trend right now. Um, you know, we could, uh, I happen to get into the detail of it, but it, it, I will just say this, the tax credit affordable housing world is its completely own domain. Yes, you have development operations, you know, finding land, building buildings, renting units like we would in, you know, market rate, new construction or value add deals. Um, but the complexities of the subsidies that you use, the different tax credit, you know, the tax credit program, in the different states that allocate it, it is a completely, you know, alternative u- universe and, and very powerful, right? Um, but also limited, finite. In other words, there's only enough projects based on the amount of government subsidy that can go into them, you know, and as we can just basically make a, you know, sort of a general common sense call that, you know, government resources are always limited. I mean, today in the $2 trillion QE infinite, you know, fiscal stimulus, you know, we're, we're sort of in a different era related to government subsidizing, you know, different, you know, private market activities, uh, which tax credit projects and affordable housing are private market you know, projects ultimately that happen to have government, you know, support, but they're always finite. In fact, this is one of the reasons why we created our UTH or urban townhouse program, because basically we can create a workforce housing model 
that uh, you know helps multi generational middle income families, but we use private capital like a standard market rate deal would. We pair those two together, and that's you know why we've actually created that UTH innovation because affordable housing with government subsidies always finite. And we wanted to capture a part of the marketplace that could serve, you know, social impact purpose of housing multi-gen moderate families, but also, you know, apply or, you know, get entry into the private market, you know, equity markets, which, you know, isn't virtually unlimited, but for projects that produce, you know, yields that are sufficient to attract capital, then, you know, you're going to find capital in that environment. Hey, it's Adam Adams, and I want to take a second to say thank you to one of our sponsors. Now, if you've tried to earn a full-time income flipping houses the traditional way, you know it takes a lot of money. Putting 10 or 20% down on each house adds up fast. Plus, you could lose hundreds of thousands of dollars if you get caught holding a few houses when the market crashes. Well, what if I told you that there was a better way to flip houses? A way that didn't require much upfront capital, a way that made it easy to find more fix and flip deals than you could even handle. And best of all, a way that insulated you from losing all your money in a market crash. Well, I'm here to tell you that there is a simple way to quit your job and flip houses full time. It's called Fix and List Deal. Eric Young used the strategy to quit his job, double his income, and become a self-made house flipper in less than a year. Eric's a real estate investor located in Denver, and he's perfected the Fix and List strategy over the last four years. And he's got a free giveaway. Learn how you can implement the Fix and List strategy by watching Eric's free video lessons at fixandlistsecrets.com. It may just change your life. Let's go into the townhomes a little more. I, sure. I think that that right now, as Adam was saying, no matter what economic cycle we're in, that sounds like a very creative, unique asset. Is it an asset class? Would you classify it? Or would you just say it's, it's what would you kind of classify what you're building and focusing yeah. on? Yeah, good, great question. So, I mean, it is a multifamily new construction asset class. You know, if you were to give it a general class designation, uh, we just happen to be applying different capital sources to a really uncommonly served marketplace. So, Urban Townhouse or UTH for short is a three story on grade townhome rental product that basically, so you have this townhouse up and down living lifestyle with five bedrooms and four bathrooms. And it's designed. How many square feet? Uh, 1750 is okay. our average. And okay. in fact, we do a production model for this five bedroom, four bath unit. So we're building basically the same unit over and over again. So in fact, all of our projects going back about two years, all use this, you know, exact same footprint, like a production home builder would have a specific plan that they produce over and over again for efficiencies. Um, we're applying some of those same you know, production uh, methodologies to make the hard costs more efficient amongst other things that help us make the overall offer more efficient and therefore can produce, you know, what has us able to produce the yields to equity, right? Because that's usually the comment is people can't make affordable housing work using private capital because it doesn't, true affordable housing doesn't produce a return, not in the way we all think of in a normal market rate scenario. So, UTH is in, you know, purposely designed to, again, access the capital markets, um, but producing this type of unit that serves this middle-income family. So we've seen a lot more uh, prefab building mm -hmm. over traditional building, kind of right. a creative way to make housing affordable to build. Is there any 
play in there on, with you guys on any prefab or is it more the prefab kind of design, but still traditional on-site construction? Yeah, great question. So we, we like, I think a lot of developers that are, you know, always looking for new innovations and new technologies to use. And we've deeply explored, explored the modular housing uh, methodologies, panelized systems. We've even uh, done a deep dive on uh, 3d printed houses, you know, that, you know, extrude, you know, the cementious material to build your walls. What we basically have found um, so far, at least in the markets that we're active in, is that the, the modular systems still do not deliver the cost efficiency that we can provide using a, you know, a loyal long-term subcontractor base combined with a very, very efficient um, build plan, right? Stick built, you know, to put it in a, in a simplistic way. Uh, you know, we're delivering that, you know, probably depending on which modular company you talk to, a lot of them up to, you know, three weeks ago, we're backlogged, you know, several months, if not years. I think that'll change in this new uh, economic environment. We were, we just couldn't find the cost efficiency. So we were ending up with, you know, build costs that were, you know, 175, 180 a foot for a product that we could build, you know, you know, probably 50 bucks plus a foot than what the modular companies were able to deliver. So we could just never find the cost efficiencies. Now that's not to say that we won't ever find it. Like as modular builders become more common, that more companies are serving that market, I would expect costs to come down. Um, but, you know, right now, guess what guys, we're in a, we're in recessionary, you know, era of coronavirus. Uh, we're already seeing an immediate impact of a much more labor availability and in fact, we're already seeing costs drop in our construction activities, both a velocity increase because we have more labor available. And actually, we're now getting bids coming in on, you know, new trades that we're bidding on active construction projects that are dropping somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. So we're, we'll see modular housing potentially drop in price, but we'll also see, you know, historically, you know, standard balloon frame building methodologies. Those will drop as well, or at least on the, on the labor yeah. component. You're, you're at a level that a lot of people strive to ultimately want to be at. Uh, so you're seeing some of these 20, 30% savings. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that someone who's maybe getting started, uh, maybe they own or develop their first house or two, and maybe looking at developing a fourplex or something, mm-hmm. do you feel that this might be a good time for them to start that looking in that process because of the, the labor and some of those savings because it's a year to year and a half out process. Mm-hmm. So maybe bringing that dip, you know, coming out of it and then you're, you're hitting it right at coming out, but yet you're taking advantage of the year of the recession yeah. labor pricing. Yeah. Maybe- and yeah. Well, so there's a, there's a common saying in the, in the industry of build through a recession, mm-hmm. which basically means, you know, be active in your construction where you're not yet delivering units to sell or rent, depending on your product type where you can advantage, you know, the project related to the cost structures for hard costs, labor and materials. Um, I think to answer your question specifically, what we, yes, we'll see uh, dropping construction costs. We're already actually seeing it, uh, but you have to be really careful in, in times of economic turbulence to be very, very, um, you know, cautious in your underwriting of rents, as an example, because the product types will be product type, meaning the type of unit. Are you doing studios or ones? Are you doing three bedrooms? Are you doing five bedrooms? 
um, that there will be some impact from the present economic turbulence in some part of the rental market, right? Like, you know, people are talking about, hey, we need to assess how people are making their April rent payments. How many people across the United States won't be making their rent payment? I know some people, Ben Bernanke, saying this economic environment's more like a, uh, you know, what did he call it? A blizzard, right? Where you're shut down for several yeah. days and then, you know, it stops snowing and, you know, we'll recover at some point and we might apply that to the rental market. Yeah. But I think as a new developer, I think the, 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 at least in my experience, new developers or people that are getting into the business will often default to a more aggressive stance on rent underwriting, right? Like, you know, I see, you know, Joe down the streets getting, you know, X per square foot for his units. I think I might be able to get a little bit more and they've never been tested in times of distress or, or economic downturn to know that, hey, look, rents could go down 10%, 20%, maybe more. Sure. Now, I'm not a... I'm not in a bad mood in this present economic environment. In fact, I think there's going to be a opportunity. And in fact, for our UTH model, not only are we seeing, you know, an acceleration in construction velocity and cost savings, but because we're doing a five bedroom, four bath townhouse unit, we're actually getting families that are combining together or roommates that are combining together in what we call the economic sharing model, right? So people they don't move away from home, they move back home or they get more roommates or the in-laws come move with them or grandmother, you know, uh, comes and lives with them. And so we're actually seeing an acceleration in our leasing velocities, surprisingly enough. I mean, we always anticipated that UTH would be uh, perform, you know, neutral to positive in a recessionary environment because the family groups that we rent to already exist in this economic sharing model, right? Like they, they are already defensive in, in certain ways. Um, this change in the economic, uh, you know, stance at this point in time uh, accelerates that. So we're in a unique position right now. And, and of course, we're early in this entire economic story of coronavirus but we're actually seeing, you know, some positive benefits in the cost savings and, and velocity and, and even some rent increases, surprisingly enough. I can't say that about every, every, you know, multifamily asset type. I've heard people describe that, you know, properties that have studio and one bedrooms might actually be under more pressure on rent downward trends because those are occupied by single household uh, income generators, Right one person working that lives in a one bedroom unit, those people are going to be under pressure because if they lose their job, of course, that, you know, immediately, you know, ceases their capability to pay rent unless it's from some other source. But our families naturally are two to four wage earners, if not more. And so when one person has a job situation change, you know, they tend to pick up the slack between the other income earners. Now, we're in an extreme environment right now. I'm not going to mince any words. We don't know what's going to happen but as an example, in our project in Orange County, the families that are actually coming to rent, and we actually leased three units last week, um, which brings our pre-leasing on that project to 42%. Um, we're all basically, you know, employed in environments that didn't, weren't directly impacted by, you know, people who were working restaurants. So as an example, one had, had a household, had a job at TSA, you know, government job, very stable, you know, you can, you know, make, uh, you know, you can sort of anticipate some change in travel schedules changing that, but, you know, in all, you know, for all comparison sakes, you know, he's in relatively good shape compared to other folks. So we're, you know, of course, having to make assessments about new renters in that environment as well to make sure that we're picking, you know, 
as a as an owner operator investor in our own projects and you know a fiduciary for our investors you know we have to make good choices for you know who we rent these new units to yeah that's a good call we are building 18 uh new build three-story townhomes right uh, in the heart of denver and we met ah, with the councilman a, cool. a year ago when we were planning and ultimately i would say we're going to keep those for rent um so we'll be delivering those in, in january yeah. uh not a great time of year to deliver and mm-hmm. for an economic time maybe not the best so but uh, january was, of next year sorry yep, to interrupt. Yep, yeah, yeah yeah next year so yeah but what why i was going to bring that up is is we chose to do the two bedrooms and more mm-hmm. units we ran every pro forma and the councilman actually wanted us to um build less units larger because mm-hmm. one of the reasons was was kids they are yeah. losing all the families in this area right um to just young couples and they have a couple and they or a kid and they move away. So that mm-hmm. was one of the big things. Ultimately, I don't know to be determined if we made the right decision of versus going four or five less units and yeah. three or four or five bedroom. But I would hearing you talk about it right now, I'm 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 running those pro formas in my yeah. head. I'm like, I I think I would choose if I just snap my fingers, I would choose to have the l- less units, larger bedroom count than the two bed, two and a half bad yeah units so i mean look this is you know you guys this is a you know great developer lesson of having to choose the product type right when you buy value add you inherit whatever mix and you're going to choose between one project that has more studios or more two bedrooms or whatever the choice you would have in a marketplace but as a developer you now differentiate yourself in the marketplace because you you know, create that program from whole cloth, right? You look at a, you know, an empty piece of ground or an underutilized site and you go, what do I put there? Right. There's an art to it. And I have no like uh, editorial on your choice. In fact, as you're speaking this, I mean, one, I'm very encouraged that the council member, you know, spoke that, you know, that's, actually unusual because that's the usually it's the opposite right yeah. most council members go no less less units smaller like we we don't want families right at least in california that's what we get a lot yeah but also you know just an observation i mean look doing a five bedroom townhouse unit is like extreme yeah right it's like on the on the on the long end of the tail on that side of the spectrum for for unit sizes Although I will share this, um, so I, I do a lot of work with uh, University of Southern California here, you know, in, in uh, Los Angeles, Orange County marketplace, and there's a guy who runs the Less Center named Richard Green, super smart guy. And when I was talking about UTH, he had an interesting observation. He goes, you know, you're not doing more density of units, which is the typical move for developers. You'd always go, hey, get more units on that piece of ground, right? That's better. He said, you're doing density in bedrooms, Yep. And so therefore you create the same dynamic of producing more rent on a given piece of ground, except you're not doing it with more units. Right. So I was like, yeah, that's actually true. Um, but also we differentiate because we want to be an uncommon, you know, call it contrarian offer. Although at contrarians I use, I use carefully here because, you know, for us in California, these middle income families were under duress already, even, you know, in fact, arguably from the market peak in housing, rents, housing costs, you know, they were under pressure to be able to afford housing. In fact, you know, the common story is everybody's, you know, moving out of California to go to Texas and Colorado and Arizona. And most of the people that are moving are middle income families, right? Uh, But we saw this stress, this duress, this high uh, percentage of income paid towards rents. And that's actually what we resolved to solve in the UTH design 
But what also do these we have garages, they do. They have a two car ground floor, okay. direct access garage, like you would at your house. And it's built over quintessential kind of townhome. It's, it's yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Two car garage on the ground floor. You know, in fact, what we do, we, we make these multi-generational by putting one of the bedroom bathrooms on the ground floor. Yep. So if you have a grand grandparents or in-laws that are older, but mobility issues, they, you know, have easier access, you know, stairway going up. And then kitchen, dining, living, um, you know, we and I'm try guessing to that's all... getting your ADU points as well. Uh, so correct. Yeah. In fact, those bathrooms in California have to be, you know, yep. have to have the ADA bathroom, you know, the five foot turn, you know, yeah, ADA, sorry. Yeah. 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 No, no, you're right on the money. Um, no, we don't have to make the upper parts of the second, third yep. floor ADA accessible which is great because we don't like afford elevators in these units. We have to be real, you know, as you guys are probably experiencing your own build, you know, we've, we've worked to strip out every possible, you know, cost friction we can. Um, So when we build the same units over and over again, it's the same spec for appliances, countertops, you know, cabinets, flooring, windows, you know, these are all the same materials, material suppliers, same subcontractors. So we're really in a home building model, right? Where you'd use the same thing over and over and over again, really to, you know, really uh, exploit as much efficiency in the build system as you can, which, like I said before, amongst other things has us be cost efficient across the whole plan, right? Like, you know, efficient construction, uh, we're building in generally lower or lower middle income neighborhoods so we can buy land more cost effectively. We generally don't buy sites that need heavy entitlements. So we're doing buy right projects, saving the time, you know, factor of having long, you know, approval periods if you have to get rezones. Um, and then, you know, like Richard Green said, you know, we have this density factor in the unit ha- that has us produce rents between three and 4,000 a month, which sounds high depending on what market you're in, but it's, you know, it's a dollar 80 to $2 a foot in Los Angeles, where up till three weeks ago, we were in a market that was easily three, four, five, maybe $6 a foot, depending on the market that you're in. And so we were very competitive on a value basis. And then also we're, you know, building these units in neighborhoods where these families already live, right. In these lower, lower middle income neighborhoods, our family demographic already exists there. We're just giving them a new type of unit to live in. Awesome. And let's talk about kind of in a, in a quick format, IRR, because you can have mm-hmm. 10 podcasts just about how to calculate IRR and, and the pros <laughs> right. and cons. So yeah, right. let's, there, there's ex- someone starting on their first single family, they hear, you know, GRM, gross rent multiplier, mm-hmm. just how many times is a month's rent are you paying for the house? If it's $10,000 right. or $1,000 a month rent and it's 100 GRM, you're paying 100,000. I mean, that's yeah. just bare bones and the cash on cash. Right. You promote a lot about your IRR and I know mm-hmm. sophisticated investors and developers are, are really key on the IRR calculation. So mm-hmm. what would you maybe <clears throat> say to some of these listeners that are starting, getting going, that are using the cash on cash and the GRM and they don't quite understand the IRR and those calculations, maybe a few tips or, or reasons why they might want to look in that versus just a GRM. Yeah. Great question. So, you know, IRR, like you described, it is just a more sophisticated way of looking at, you know, yields produced on a given investment. And a friend of mine, uh, Steve Jackson, he, he calls it a time weighted calculation. Mm -hmm. So in other words, a cash on cash or a GRM, 
uh, is usually a static calculation. So that year's income divided by your invested dollar produces your cash on cash. But if you invest $100 and you get your money back plus your yield in one year versus another investment where you invest that same $100, but you get your yield over time and your money back in 10 years, well, of course, inflation is going to degrade the value of your $100 back. You know, uh, you know, when you get it back in 10 years, your $100 will be worth less, right? Uh, although hopefully you've got some yield on top of it. So IRR is a you know, methodology, a formula to calculate and, and take into account you know, the net present value of future income, right? When you get your $100 back plus your yield in 10 years and discount it to today's you know, value, what, what is that? return, right? So time-weighted, right? It includes the, the value of time in the calculation. So I won't try to get into the, descrip- you know, the, the, yep. the actual description of how you calculate it, but I will offer some ways that people can explore to learn about it. And as you say, you know, you could do a hundred podcasts. And sure. by the way, there's a million articles out there about, yeah. you know, is IRR good? Some people call BS You can get a full it. MBA, essentially, real estate <laughs> right. MBA yeah, on exactly. IRR. That's your That's final, st- um, you know, t- test case at the end. Is yeah, you have to build IRR. a model as, yeah. your, as your keystone, your yep. capstone course, build a model yep. and calculate IRR of a return over, you know, that kind yeah. of so what I would suggest people do is go out and read articles on, on what you know, IRR is, how it's calculated. In fact, I'd even encourage people to go to our website. We have an investor education section in there. I have a three-part, actually two-part article series on different ways of underwriting apartments. And we talk about IRR. We talk about cash on cash. I don't think I necessarily get into GRM just because that's not one we use uh, often. But so there's that. So learn about it. Um, And then, you know, the reality of it, guys, is, you know, most people who start to become more sophisticated should be building Excel pro formas, a model of uh, calculating income and expenses and NOI, cash flows of your build costs and acquisition timelines, and then, you know, calculating construction and permanent loan amounts. So and future values, right, of you know, in, in 10 years, there, there's got, a lot of apps out there that, that do that for you already and virtual yeah. workers. So there, it's, you know, some, there's, yeah, a lot you of could probably go and, on Upwork and find yep. somebody who could, you know, Hey, run numbers, yep. but he, but, but, uh, but I'll, uh, let me qualify this though. I find and people that, you know, we work with and, you know, even people that I just mentor, I always advise people build your own model, even if it's a simple model, because there is nothing like having to go through, and make assessments of rents and operating expenses and plugging them into a model and understanding how it flows through on your income expense summary, how cash flows go over time, how the cap rate influences your valuation. And then, you know, eventually when you get sophisticated enough, that's sort of the point I was going to make, you know, Excel has an IRR formula mm-hmm. and it's actually fairly straightforward as long as you understand, you know, where your cash flows of the timelines of your project are. And then, you know, you, you put certain, you know, formulas into the IRR, XIRR, you know, formula in Excel, and it does it for you. Now, it can be easily messed up, right, interpretations of how it's working. So, you know, sometimes I look at an IRR and I go, that doesn't make sense. Something's wrong. And maybe, you know, I, I missed a month of cash flow or I've got, you know, a month of cash flow too early before the cash flow started or when the investment went in. Um, but you were really going to learn best. In fact, I always encourage people who want to get into the investment space generally or development, go out and find a hundred deals and underwrite every one of them, find out the rents, 
do the assessment, the operating expenses, run the numbers, you know, you may not do any of those deals. And this would be true in value add, you know, if you're doing, you know, any deal, you know, house hacking, um, development, you're going to make a bunch of assessments, meaning judgments and interpretations and information gathering, plug it in your model and run them over and over and over again. I, I promise you, by the time you get to the 50th one, you'll own that. And also it will start to prompt you to know the questions to ask when you just look at a deal or maybe say you're an investor and you want to assess, you know, sponsors deal, or you're looking to make an investment. You as an investor should really, if you're going to invest in multifamily assets, really be able to underwrite apartments, maybe as good as the sponsor would be, or maybe better, right? Cause it's your money, you know, at risk. And for, you know, if you're in an LP position, it's going to be the predominance of your money that, that funds the deal, at least in LP equity position, and I don't know that, I mean, sophisticated investors know this stuff. They usually come from a background, either they worked in private equity or they worked in some space in the real estate domain that gave them the capability to do that. But I'll tell you, when I was at Kaufman Abroad, when I worked for that guy, Mark Costa, that I, uh, you know, alluded to earlier, my first job as like the, you know, lowest on the totem pole assistant project manager is I ran numbers, man. And I ran probably thousands of models. I took other people's models and brought them into ours. I, I you know, you know, just ran, you know, hundreds, thousands of models. And so after a while, it became so intuitive and taught me how money flows through deals, right? How the capital stack works. You know, when you have a construction loan and it's paid off by the perm loan, how's that going to work? What's the timing of that? When does your equity come in? When do you start calculating? These are like examples of the things that are, you know, interweaved in how you underwrite the model. And you also learn, by the way, you can change any little variable in the model and make the deal work, right? In fact, at, yeah. when I worked for Mike, we called it magic pixie dust. You know, you could go in the office and lock your door and, you know, sprinkle some dust on this pro forma and man, the thing works. But yeah. how, how, just yeah. amazing, right? And uh, my joke now is when I was a young project manager, there was no deal I couldn't make work, right? Hairy, complicated really no real story of execution, man. I, I was like gung ho. I can make every deal work. Now I'm the complete opposite, you know, probably nine out of 10 or, you know, 19 out of 20 deals don't even make it to step one. Um, and so we make very quick, you know, really blunt and brutal assessments early because we know at the end of the day, any complexity that you add into a project is going to reduce profits. In fact, that's my saying is complexity is the enemy of profits in real estate development, right? So earlier I alluded to simplification or, you know, squeezing out all the friction and the UTH model that was, that comes from that space of having done lots of complicated deals, podium deals, you know, super complicated entitlements you know, uh, projects that required unusual construction methodologies that were unknown to the developer and required a GC to take on a new technology or a new methodology of building. All those will basically rob your bottom line ultimately. And so if you are going to offer that to anybody who's getting into the business, like hold that. That's true for value add deals too, by the way. I mean, any investment is going to be hurt by complexity and you could have complexity in marketplace right now earlier i talked about being cautious and underwriting rents that's where we're at right now in this phase of the coronavirus recession is we're in a complicated environment for assessment of rents and you know we're literally doing a day-by-day -day, you know assessment of of you know deals we have minimal exposure 
by the way, um, part of the lesson I learned in 2008 was to be very, very cautious in launching new projects in anticipation of what the future economic cycle looks like, you know, up or down. And we knew, you know, a year ago um, that we were at the longest economic expansion we'd had in history. Um, we had assessments about that. And we're not in a bad mood about the present environment. We're vigilant is the terminology I use. And we're seeing, we sort of anticipated that UTH might accelerate. And in fact, we're seeing that acceleration now. So cool. Yeah. Well, Scott, thank you for all your time coming on the show. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, two, two quick questions for you. The first one is who do you serve and how, how can you help them? And the mm -hmm. second one is how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, great questions. So this is, you know, not to overstate UTH, but one of the things that we're highly enthusiastic about the UTH model is that we're serving these middle income families, right? These are families that are being ever dropped down the food chain of the housing marketplace as market, as market prices for rents go up, you know, they're being dropped down the food chain and housing type and locations. And so we're really, I, I have dedicated our entire business plan to this model, right? This UTH middle income housing model. And in fact, I expect to do this the rest of my career and we're going to hold every, you know, asset that we build, we're going to hold it long-term because we have such a firm belief in the social impact story and, you know, the, the positive economic benefit to the investors in the marketplace too, mind you, those go together. Um, people, how people can get a hold of us, I would encourage people to go to our website. It's www.urbanpacific.com. Uh, there's a contact page uh, that people can reach me. My email is there. My direct you know, phone number is there. People can text me if they want. And then I would encourage people to go check out our investor education section. We have tons of video content, articles that we've written, a lot of how-to, like I described earlier about the apartment underwriting. We have, you know, assessing land assets, you know, project management, um, you know, economic cycle tracking would be examples of the kind of information that we have there. And it was all written from where we already basically were operating, meaning these are the things we do for our own, you know, information, for our own assessments and management of our company. All I figured out one day was like, oh, I got to be sharing this with people because we're already doing this. You know, I'm reading like you guys probably are, you know, obsessively. I'm on probably every webcast that exists across the marketplace, CBRE, Walker Dunlop, you know, uh, RCL Co, right, trying to get up-to-date information, you know, assessments in the marketplace, where are we going? Um, and, you know, I would encourage people to do the same and then go to our website and you're going to find a lot of that's already basically digested, you know, stripped down to its essence and then shared out into the marketplace with everyone. Awesome. Thank you so much. Urbanpacific.com is in the show notes, so you don't even have to worry about it. If you're listening, just scroll down, click on that button, urbanpacific.com. Not specific. It sounded like I said specific. <laughs> urbanpacific.com. It's in the show notes. Don't worry. Grab it, and you can see the investor education as well. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. We're going to let you go, but until next time, my friend, think outside the box. This is Jason J. Lou Lewis, co-host of the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I want to say it's an absolute honor to have you as a listener, and we thank you for tuning in today. We also want to thank our sponsor, FixAndListSecrets.com. They have that great free video lesson, and in that video lesson, you will learn to never struggle to find or fund your next fix and flip deal again. Learn how to flip houses without ever taking out a mortgage or a hard money loan. You can now flip houses full-time, 
and not have the risk of losing money in a real estate market crash. There's a simple way to flip houses full-time, and this is it. Visit FixAndListSecrets.com. See you on the next episode.